So you pick up a good book for the summer, and you crack it open, and you're giving it a read, and for whatever reason, you commit the cardinal sin of reading a book, you get impatient with the book, and you flip to the last page, because you're like, it got a bit slow in the middle, I just need to know, how does this thing all end? How does this thing wrap up? Any of you guilty of ever doing that? I don't know if that's a good thing or not. But that's kind of what we're going to do right now. So for the next few weeks, we're going to flip to the last page, as it were, looking at different texts in the Bible. But these particular passages where God is showing us how does this thing end? God, how, how are you wrapping this thing up and what does that look like? Uh, because in the Bible, God gives us a revelation. He gives us a picture of how things wrap up. Why? why? Why would you do that, God? Why would you do that? Here's why I think. Because if you truly, you and I, if we truly got our heads and our hearts around what is coming up at end times, I think it would change the way that we live our lives today. I think it would. And beyond that, because God is so gracious and so loving and so kind, I think he recognizes that we're here in this middle bit Right? This is not the beginning, and I don't think today is the end. We're in the middle, and that's what's common to every single one of us here. And as a result, every person listening to me right now is familiar with disappointment and pain and challenges and sickness and death and tears. I don't have to convince anybody here of those things. They're actually common to every single one of us. And God would come to you today and next week and over these few next weeks to let you know this. It will not always be that way. What is common to you and I in terms of despair and disappointment and challenges and pain and all of the difficulties that we face in seasons or sometimes on a daily basis, God is coming to you today to tell you it's not always going to be like that. In fact, this is not the way that it ought to be. That despite sometimes what feels like a hurricane of chaos in our lives, as you listen to the news on television, as what sometimes seems like a barrage of personal inadequacies and disappointments, and I don't know how to resolve these things, there will come a day for those who follow Jesus Christ when all of that pain will be merely a distant memory and it will pale in comparison to this eternity that you and I are going to walk into that is filled with never-ending joy and existence with Jesus Christ that will be completely devoid of any kind of sickness or addiction or death or sin in tears. All that we will ever know is once again walking in the garden with God, but it will be a new heaven and a new earth, and we will reside in the city of God where God, we will be his people, and he will be our God. Amen. Like something inside of me is like, I think our only response is, if that's what's coming, then come Lord Jesus. Come soon. We look forward to that day. We're going to look at a little pastor scripture here in Matthew chapter 24. And it's kind of funny because one of the disciples gives an off-the-cuff little remark to Jesus. Probably just a nice conversation piece. They're leaving the temple 
And one of the disciples says to Jesus, look at the temple. Isn't it great? And there's no doubt about it. For the Jewish people, it was, uh, it was a beautiful building, probably the most iconic building for in their entire country. It was big. It was ornate. But it was a symbol of the presence of God for them as a people. And it was the sacrificial system where their sins could be taken care of. In fact, their whole culture and religion and faith and everything about them was about this temple. And this disciple innocently makes this comment, Jesus, look at the temple. Don't you love the temple? And Jesus launches into this sort of prolific speech that is filled with insights. So take a look at these few little verses here. Matthew chapter 24. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciple came up to him and called his attention to the, to the building. So there's the innocent comment. Look at his response. Do you see all these things? So looking at the temple, he asked. Truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. Thanks for the casual conversation, Jesus. I was just saying, is it a nice building? And you've launched into this thing where you're basically saying, the whole temple's going to be put upside down. Like the whole thing's going to be dismantled. The temple. Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives. The disciples came to him privately, so they have not forgotten about this. Tell us, they said. When will this happen? And it's as though they know that that little comment about the temple being pulled asunder, he must be referring to some kind of end day. Look at this. Tell us, when will this happen? What will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? They know what he's talking about. Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you. Now, I like that because right now in this moment, you are reading a scripture and Jesus is saying, I'm telling you this because somebody wants to deceive you and I don't want you tricked. I don't want you deceived. Deceived. So listen to what I'm saying. Many will come in my name claim, claiming I am the Messiah and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. Now look at the last four to five weeks of our lives. There was a rumor of a war and now there is a war. Uncanny timing. See to it that none of you are alarmed. Can I ask you, in the last four to five weeks, have you been alarmed? Are you alarmed this morning at what is taking place in our world? Jesus says to you, I don't want you to be alarmed by that. Such things must happen. But the end is still to come. Now, the language here is very, very important. Rumors of war and war, these things have to happen. They must happen, but the end is still to come. There will be famine. Uh, I skipped a line. Hold on. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famine and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. I'm going slowly there on purpose. All of these things are the beginning of birth pains. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. You'll be hated because of all nations, because of me. Remember all this from one comment about the building. At this time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people because of the increase of wickedness. The love of most will grow cold. 
but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. That may be one of my favorite scriptures. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then you have this phrase. It's a little bit different to one that we read earlier. And then the end will come. So earlier we read a phrase that said, but the end is still to come. But here it says when the gospel goes to all nations, it says, and then the end will come. So Father, would you please help us understand the scripture right now? Because there's a lot in here that can be hard to understand. Father, would you do what only you can do? And would you speak to our lives today? We open our hearts to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. So this chapter, and actually the chapter after this, is, it has a nickname. It's called the Olivet Discord, simply because Jesus spoke these words on the Mount of Olives. It is one of the key scriptures for understanding the end times. The book of Daniel, the book of Revelations, Matthew chapter 4, 24 and 25, 1 Thessalonians and some other places as well. These are key core scriptures for looking at uh, the last pages, the end times. This scripture is not the easiest to understand. In fact, every bit of the Bible that I just said to you the last 10 seconds, there are some parts of the Bible that are simple and there are some parts that are hard to understand. Different Christians have different perspectives on this. And I always want to be respectful of different Christians who have a different understanding or interpretation of these uh, scriptures. In fact, some, some Christians have really, really strong opinions about this subject. And I want you to hear this, if you would, please. These scriptures are never meant to be divisive. Amen? They're never meant to be that. God never wrote this to cause us to say, well, you're wrong and I'm right and get away from me and I'm not, I'm not talking to you. God never designed these scriptures to pull us apart. In fact, when you hear Christians who come up and tell you things, you're like, well, I, didn't, I never understood it that way, or I actually think maybe there's a different way of looking at that. I think it's an opportunity for us to humble ourselves and to be respectful and to listen, and maybe we can learn from each other. Additionally, having said all of that, if after this service you are one of the wonderful Christians who have read many, many books on this subject, and you have a burning need to come up to me and tell me all about that. I, I, I'm actually going to ask you not to do that. Because I will be inundated. And I would encourage you to shoot me an email instead. If that's something you want to do. I want to recognize that there are people here. And what we're going to be talking about today and over the next few weeks. Uh, you'll be hearing this maybe for the first time in your life. And you're like, I, I've never studied this. I've never read these parts of the Bible. And I don't understand this. And then at the same time, as I've just mentioned, there are Christians here who have done deep, deep study on this stuff for many, many years. And for whatever reasons, this tends to be a subject matter that for some Christians, they get really fascinated with and dive into. And maybe you've read more books than me and Pastor Aaron and Pastor Wally all combined, and you've really dove uh, deep into all of this. If that's the case, there may be an expectation or a desire on your part that we're going to look at every angle of every interpretation and every timeline, and really what you're looking for is like a 24-week, two-hour uh, study every occasion, and I'm going to disappoint you. That's not what we're going to be doing. I won't be looking at every single angle. What I'll be doing is what I always do when I open up God's Word. I believe God has called me not only to preach the Bible, but God has called me to preach the Bible to people. And there's a distinction in this. And I want us to look at end times, and I hope that it will change the way we live our lives today. So, let's dive into this. So, God, what are you doing? When are you doing it? God, when are you coming back? What about this pandemic thing that we've been living through? 
What about Ukraine and Russia? Is that all a part of it? What about politics? What about over the years of my life when certain people, you know, I remember when uh, Pope John Paul became the Pope. I remember people saying things. And then we've had several other popes. What about when, when Reagan became the president? What about when Obama did, or Clinton did, or Bush did, or Trump did, or Biden did? <laughs> I'm just saying that to frighten everybody, like, where is this going? <laughs> what does that mean? What does it mean when a certain country starts fighting with another country? What are we supposed, how are we supposed to interpret that? What do all of these things mean? Well, let me say three things to you very briefly. Number one, Jesus has foreknowledge. Jesus has foreknowledge. That's a theological term. That simply means God knows what's going to happen before it happens. Very simple. So God was not in shock when a president became a president or when this pandemic hit the world. We didn't see a picture of sort of God sort of wringing his hands, pacing back and forth in heaven, biting his nails, going, man, I, I better come up with a plan right now. God has foreknowledge. Secondly, God is foretelling. God is foretelling things. The scripture we see is brimming over with prophecy. So not only does Jesus foreknow, but he's foretelling us things that are going to happen. That's his grace and his goodness and his kindness. He's making us aware of days that are to come. Why? So that we are not deceived or shocked or alarmed or filled with fear. God is preparing us out of kindness. And God knows that he has plans and purposes that will be rolled out over the course of time. Number three, Jesus is in control. Amen? Amen. Our God is in control. And I love that truth. So whatever is happening, allowing for free will, praise God, allowing for the reality of evil in this world, and I don't think I have to convince anybody of that, given those two incredible variables, in the context of his purposes and his plans, in the end, we as a people of God believe that he is still seated upon the throne, that he has never left that throne, and that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He will always be king and Lord. God is large and in charge, and everything that we face, from the smallest little minute things of my life and your life to those global issues, we don't have to worry. Our God is absolutely in control of everything, and he invites us to be aware of what is going on. I'm glad of these things. This piece of scripture that I just read here is referring to a specific piece of time. It is the time after Jesus Christ has risen, from the dead and ascended into heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father. That is where Jesus is. And it is before the time of his return. In the Gospel of Luke, he refers to it as the age of the Gentiles. It's this phrase, a nickname that he gives for this period of time that we're living in here right now. The age of the Gentiles. The season where the gospel and the good news and the breaking out of the kingdom of God would not be simply for the Jewish people, but that it would go to the Gentiles. Gentiles is a word for people who are not Jewish people. And so, as a result of that, here we are today at a little church called Community Church online and in Alma and in Mount Pleasant, where there's a group of men and women who love Jesus Christ, who knew that in the middle of this state called Michigan, we would be living in the age of the Gentiles because the gospel has reached this far and it has actually touched our own hearts and lives. This is the age of the Gentiles. This is the season 
where God is at work even in our lives. Matthew puts another emphasis on this. He gives another description to the age of the Gentiles, this period of time. We just read it. It's in verse 8. He says, all of these things are the beginning of birth pains. That's another description for the time that we're living in. This is the beginning of birth pains. Now, some of you in this room know exactly what that feels like. Praise God, I don't. I'm really glad. (laughs) Don't you love being a dude? But some of you know what that is like. It's not the birthing, it's the beginning of that. Actually, the text is very specific around the words that it chooses. The pangs of pain that begin at the beginning where a woman's body will give birth. It's not the end, it's not the culmination of the delivery of that baby, it's the beginning of that. A blessing is coming, new life is coming, something is going to happen And he could have used many many illustrations, but the emphasis of this illustration says this. The pains and the trouble that you're going through, I want to put it in context for you. All of that is happening right now, but it will be fulfilled when I come back for my church. And that is the name that Matthew chooses to put over this season. It has some characteristics to it. It has a personality to it. There are physical characteristics And there are spiritual characteristics. Let me show you one or two physical characteristics. Verse 6. You will hear, and we just read this, of wars and rumors of wars. But see to it that none of you are alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. So in the period of time, the age of the Gentiles, the period of time between his ascension and his return, there's going to be And here's a physical characteristic. There will be wars and rumors of wars. We will see nations and kingdoms going and fighting against each other. There will be trouble. Don't be anxious. Don't be alarmed. Don't be shocked by that. These things must happen. Now, it's possible that what we could do is what we could put a list together of all of the wars that are currently being waged. In fact, if you look at the ages that are listening to me right now, even to the most elderly person in this room, individuals in maybe even their 90s, maybe, maybe close to 100 years of age. I think there's one lady in our church who's 101, which is amazing. And if we made a list of all of the wars that have taken place over these decades, and there are many of them, so often people say, oh, there's a war. That's it. That's the end. This must be the end. And actually, that's not what the scripture is saying. In fact, this scripture is saying the very opposite of that. It does not say wars equals the end. No, it says it is the beginning of birth pains. This will be a long period. This will be normative. For when Jesus ascends into heaven until he returns, there will be wars and that will be a normal experience. The second physical characteristic is he points out in this period of time, the age of the Gentiles, is verse 7. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. It's talking about trouble and sickness and pandemics and poverty and famine. In this world, you will have those kinds of troubles and these things will become common to us. 
Again, it does not say, oh, when you see poverty or sickness, that means it's the end. The scripture is not saying that. I don't want you to think that. All of these things will be a normal experience. Why? Well, because evil still exists in this world. And here what we have is a theological grasp of a thing that is simply known as the kingdom of God. Now, for some people, Jesus came to bring the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God simply means it is the rule and the reign of Jesus Christ over your life and in this place. Because of his love and his mercy, he brings leadership and direction and he guides us and he leads us. And here's what I would say to you. The kingdom of God is here. Praise God. But it is not fully here. It almost sounds like a contradiction. The kingdom of God is here. Jesus said as much. But it is not fully here. For some Christians, they put such an emphasis on the kingdom of God is here that when they experience any kind of trouble, when they see war or poverty or sickness, they don't know how to cope. And they go, wait a second, I thought the kingdom of God was here, particularly when it affects them. Well, how could I possibly have anything go wrong in my life? How could I be sick in any way? Isn't, how could this be happening to me? The kingdom of God is here. And here's what I'm saying. And the church, you and I, we are the tip of the spear to bring the expression of God's rule and reign in the lives of people here and in this place. But it is not fully here until he returns. But when he returns, praise God, his kingdom will be here fully. His literal presence here, and it will be awesome. It will be powerful. And when he does, there will be no more wars, no more famines, no more pandemics, no more cancer or diabetes or pneumonia or pain or death or tears. All of those things will be gone when Jesus Christ comes back. I was waiting on an amen for that one. I really thought that was good. <laughs> like that's a great day, isn't it? But right now, we live in this middle time. We live in this time in between his ascension and his return. The kingdom of God is here, but not fully here. That is the time that we live. That is common to our experience. This is the age of the Gentiles. In World War II, there's something like between, I looked this up, and I got different results, hence the, 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 the broad spectrum of this. Somewhere between 70 to 85 million people died. Now, I don't even know if we can get our heads around that's immense. A period of about five years where 70 plus million men, women, and children died. That's the period of time that we live in. And people back then thought, this is the end. This must be the end. It doesn't mean it's the end. It means it is the beginning of birth pains. It is an indicator. And I would encourage you, don't get overly consumed in all of that. When you turn on the news and you see some disaster, and how often does that happen? Right? It seems like if you don't see it, it's a surprise. It's like always bad news. That's fairly consistent, isn't it? North Korea. Look at our lives. Ukraine, Russia, Iran. Do you remember Kuwait? North America. 
Afghanistan, Northern Ireland, Yemen, Myanmar, Libya, Somalia, Sudan, the Republic of Congo. This is the season that we're in. And as I say the names of those countries, your minds are going, oh my goodness, yes. Oh, look at the war. Look at the civil war going on. Look at the atrocities. Look at the lives that are being lost. Look at the genocide that has taken place in those countries. And as horrible as that is, we're not to be shocked or alarmed by that. We're not to be deceived by every YouTube video that comes along and says to you, I'll tell you what this means. Jesus is coming back tomorrow. We need to tuck tail and run for the hills. That is the opposite of what Jesus is teaching. So important observation here. Jesus is not expecting an imminent return at this point. He's not saying, you will see some wars and famines and then I'm coming back. There is a time frame communicated in this and I don't know how long that will be and you don't know how long that will be. Retrospectively and sort of obviously, we can look back over history with confidence and look at this time between his ascension and his return, which has been over 2,000 years, and we can say, Jesus did not mean when he said these words in Matthew chapter 24 that, he was, that his return would be imminent, an immediate return. We know this to be true because of our life experience and history. So those are some physical characteristics, one or two spiritual characteristics. Verse 9, then you'll be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you'll be hated by all nations because of me. What a delightful scripture. Now, I'm well aware that, I, even as you're listening to me, that, again, there may be people who are hearing this for the very, very first time, and then there's maybe a number of people here who've studied this deeply for years and years. Some people look at this passage of Scripture, and they call it the tribulation or the great tribulation. And I'm going to suggest to you today that that's actually not the case. Now, I want you to track with me on this. This scripture is telling us, as a follower of Jesus Christ, you will be persecuted. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12 says this. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If you live a godly life, you will be persecuted. That's a normal experience for followers of Jesus Christ. So here's what's happened. You and I, we are living in an anomaly. Because does that describe your life? I don't think it does at all. I think it feels like we are the exception to the rule. Did anyone stop you from going to church this morning? Has anyone shut down our online experience that's going out to five, six, seven hundred people every week? We met here freely, and we came, and we worshiped Jesus Christ, and we're grateful for that, yeah? I'm so glad that we get to do that. But here's what I would say to you. That's not normal. It's not normal. In the last century, there were more martyrs killed for Jesus than in the previous 19 centuries. That's the normal experience. If you live today in northern Nigeria, if you live in Afghanistan, if you live in parts of Egypt, large parts of the world, 
the ability to open up this book and to read it, to even own one, to proclaim the truth of what this book speaks to, to be a follower of Jesus Christ without, per, without um, antagonism or threat upon your life, that's not normal. This isn't normal, what we're experiencing right now. And Jesus says, if you want to follow me and live a godly life, you will be persecuted. The fact that that is not happening to you in this moment, I believe it is an exception. Now here's the danger. When you grow up and live in the exception all the time, we think no persecution is actually normal. And then when persecution comes, which Jesus talks about in this scripture, he says, this is what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus Christ during these last days, during the time, the age of the Gentiles, when that actually happens to us and we are unaware of that, we don't know what to do. We can't cope with that. He does not talk in the scripture about times of a blessing. The hallmark of this time is actually trouble. And although we are blessed and grateful for that, that's not the emphasis in the scripture. It says, you will be persecuted. You will be beaten. It doesn't matter if you're a democracy or not. I tell you, we are in a broken, fallen world. We are on a trajectory to encounter increasing evil and opposition. And if you don't know that, when it comes, you will be shocked and you will be overwhelmed and you won't know what to do and you will fold. The temptation in that moment for you to simply cave in. And believe me, the pressure is coming. There will come a day, and in part I believe it has already begun to take place, where we will open up this Bible, where we'll talk about the standard of God, and this world will say, you can't say that anymore, that's hate speech. I think that is already beginning in this world. The standard in this book around sexuality alone is more than this world can cope with right now. I'm actually going to preach about it at the end of the summer. I have a feeling people will leave our church when I do that. I pray that's not the case. I pray that you listen to God. I pray that you encounter Jesus Christ. But that is my expectation, that people will go, I cannot listen to that. I refuse to listen to that. That that cannot be aligned with a God of love. Don't say that. And God would steal you today. S-T-E-E-L. He would steal you. He would mark you. He would ready you. That whatever comes your way, whatever comes our way, we will stand as the church of the living God into the future in all that we do. And I will not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I don't believe that that's talking about like a sense of embarrassment. I think it's a reference to personal attack and assault. I will not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because I believe it is the power of God unto salvation for every man, every woman, every child. I believe that to be true. In fact, I'm banking my life on it. And that is what Jesus is looking to put into your heart today as we start this series. That when trouble comes, that you will not be shocked, that you won't be running and retreating with your tail between your legs. I have watched Christians, particularly in the last two years, in this season, in particularly online, and they just are not coping. They're not coping. 
And I don't say that to diminish pain or that things have been difficult. But Christians feeling as though their rights have been taken away. Let me tell you this. It is the normal experience for Christians on the planet Earth to have their rights taken away. And we have forgotten it. So we have a window. What will we do with this window? Look at us together. Meeting online, Alma, Mount Pleasant. Looking actually to expand that to different places around central Michigan. Look at us coming together and singing freely and opening up the word of God. What would those other people around the world do if they could express the word of God the way that we have the freedom to do? What would they do if they could even own a Bible? We're a click away on our phones from God's word. And sometimes we don't open that from Sunday to Sunday. We can talk to our neighbors openly and freely about Jesus Christ and his love and his forgiveness. We can talk to our friends and family. We can do that. I don't know how that's going to be received. I don't know how that conversation is going to go. There will be a day where we try to do that and we'll be put in prison. Community church, this is where God has put us. What are we going to do with this gift, this privilege of being here, of being the church, that ability to meet anywhere, to meet in each other's homes, to love and to speak truth? What are we going to do with that? And I would say, we have to prepare ourselves. Verse 10, at that time, many will turn away from the faith. The word for that is apostasy. There are people, man, I hate saying this. I've seen this too many times though. There are people in our church today, right now. And you won't be in our church. There'll come a day in the future when you will say, no. I'm not doing that anymore. And I've seen that again and again and again. People who I thought, oh, rock solid. Now, they're good. I mean, they're, they're, they're engrossed in the life of the church. They're serving Jesus, committed. Gone. Some of you here today, you're alone. Maybe you just came by yourself today or you are not with your husband or your wife or your child's not here. In this period of time, the scripture is telling us that it is not unusual for people to be pulled away and deceived. And you need to know this. That you are here because the Holy Spirit has drawn you to this place today. You need to know that hell itself is trying to do everything it can to get you out of this place. To rob you of your walk with Jesus Christ. A one-track mission to just destroy your life, destroy your family. And it will try to pull you away from Jesus Christ. A mission from hell that is trying to accomplish that in your life. <clears throat> your children. Your children who come to this church. It is essential that they encounter Jesus Christ. They cannot exist or live on your faith. It doesn't work that day, that way. The message that we preach is one generation from being lost. As parents, how we conduct ourselves, how we pray, how we talk, how we live our lives in front of our children, it matters. And if we don't do that, I tell you, this world, it's pulling them away like a magnet. It is drawing them, it's sucking them away like a magnet. And in this pastor's scripture, it uses one word to help you understand what that magnet is. It is the word wickedness. That's the word it uses. 
Verse 12, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. I'm done. And as the temperature of wickedness goes up, it creeps into our mindset. And here's how we know when it has crept in. Here's the, oh, oh my goodness. I can't believe we got to this place. I mean, look at the world that we're living in. Go backwards 20 years. Less wicked or more wicked now? Go back 50 years. Less wicked or more wicked now? Pretty obvious stuff. And here's how you know when it has crept in. You will look at something that years ago you would have gone, oh, surely in Christ this is not for me. And you'll say, that's no big deal. That's fine. It's not, it's not hurting anybody. And from this pulpit, we will always preach that sin is sin is sin. We will always preach that. But we will always preach that its power has been broken at the cross of Calvary. We will always preach that you're not a slave to it. That we have been brought into freedom. Not so that we can keep on sinning. Not so that we can move towards gossip and drunkenness and jealousy and pornography and running from sexual partner to sexual partner. But you need to know this. It is a magnet. And it wants to eat you and destroy you and damage you. I'm not picking on any particular sin. The list is long. But it is a magnet. Let me close with this. There is another magnet. <laughs> and I'm really thankful for this. It talks about this. It's Jesus actually referring to himself, and he says, when I am lifted up, that's what he says, when I am lifted up. Now, I actually don't think that that means when Jesus is praised. I think it means when he was lifted up on the cross. When he was lifted up, it says, I will draw all men unto me. I'm so grateful for the cross. The cross of Calvary is a magnet. It has the power to draw us to himself and to keep us to himself and to sustain us to himself. And we resolve to therefore only preach Christ and him crucified because I just don't know anybody else. I've no one else in my life like this God who came and gave his life for me so that I could be in good standing with God. And so here we are starting this series. Living in between, the middle. The kingdom is here, but it's not fully here. Trouble, opposition, difficulty, all of those things, what I would say to you, completely normal. These things that are happening in our lives, they're normal. And in that mindset, we are the church. We are the people of God. We are the born-again believers. He has foreknowledge. He is foretelling, and Jesus is in control. And I speak this over your lives today. As we live in this world, there is no fear. There is no fear. There's no fear. God is in control. And as a result of that, I want to worship Him right now. I need to acknowledge Him right now. To place Him in His rightful place as King of kings and Lord of lords. 
in every circumstance. And as you do that, as you join your voice in that today, I want you to resolve today who you are in Christ Jesus. The idea that you would be here today drawn by the Spirit of God and 12 months from now or five years from now or 10 years from now, you're just gone. You're just nowhere and it's all gone. It makes me sick to my stomach. I want you to resolve today who is this God that you declare your faith in and who are you in God today? to steel yourself, to ready yourself for challenges and opposition, to align your life with what this book says, to say, I will stand on the solid ground of Jesus Christ. I know who I believe in. I know where I'm going. I know what I'm committed to. I'm standing for Jesus Christ. Amen? I'm standing for Jesus Christ. Let's worship the King of Kings.